It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I'm really excited about this episode because today we have a guest that I have not seen in what we determined has been approximately 11 years. We go way back to actually a really special time in my life when I was working in the film industry, pursuing a whole career, making movies. And I went to the Cannes Film Festival for my second time. I had gone previously to this festival to basically do an internship when I was in college. And then a few years later, I went another time as what they called a mentor, which meant that I was coming back as somebody that had graduated college and was working in the industry and was mentoring people that were in my position as interns. And it was really, both times I went to the Cannes Film Festival were really special. I mean, going to Cannes, France, the south of France is amazing. (laughs) But when you're working as a young filmmaker and you get to go to the biggest, fanciest film festival in the world, it's pretty spectacular. And one of the points that made it extra special was meeting amazing people like Kirk, who has stayed in my life since. He's actually one of a few people. I've, I've kept in touch, actually, with a lot of people from that time. Actually, wow, just reflecting on him, like I have made a few lifelong friends from that experience. And Kirk, we haven't really been in touch lately, but I was so amazed at your work and how you've transitioned too, because part of what makes this interesting is that neither you or I work in the film industry anymore. We have pivoted and we have used our backgrounds in film and storytelling to create different careers for ourselves. And I love how you focus so much on storytelling. You do an amazing job with your video content and pretty much everything you do. You have a natural charisma that I'm really excited. And for the listener, I encourage you to check out the video version of this podcast because, you know, when somebody has charisma, it's nice to watch them, not just listen to them. So we will link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, along with anything else we mentioned today, as well as the full transcript, if there's any amazing quotes coming out of Kirk's mouth, which I imagine there will be. And I wanted to start on the subject matter of storytelling, because this is actually something that is incredibly important across human life, right? We love stories. And it's also something that comes up a lot for people that are creating online content, which I know is part of your specialty, Kirk. And I I think it's a subject matter that can be really, really helpful and insightful to learn how to tell a good story. And I think for you, Kirk, you are naturally good at speaking, I believe. But actually, we should start right there. Do you perceive yourself as naturally good? Or are you similar to Jason and I where you're just very practiced? Because a lot of people will look at someone like Jason, who I also think has a lot of charisma, and they think like, oh, he's naturally gifted. I believe that's true for both of you. But both of you have also had a lot of practice. So I'd love to know, how do you feel like you became a good storyteller? And this same question could go to you, Jason. So I hope that you jump in as well. Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. Really, for, as far as speaking, my father was a speechwriter. Good diction and the way you said things. If I came home and said, I got a good grade, I'd have been like ridiculed. Just, just to, he's like, you what? You got? You received? You have? You were awarded? Like, you didn't got a grade. So yeah, my father, journalist, professional speechwriter, professional. So that was a little bit of my, my childhood rebuking, if you will. Love you, I want to pause you there for a second because that's, <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Jason yeah. and I are really passionate about conscious languaging. And honestly, 
I, Jason is cracking up. So for anyone who's just listening to the audio, again, please come watch the YouTube video version of this so you can see uh, the behind the scenes happening here. But <laughs> I, I wanted to pause you there, Kirk, because I, I think that is like one of the best things a parent can do for us because I didn't quite have it as intense as you did. But there were moments in my childhood where people corrected the way that I spoke that have impacted my entire life. And I'm so grateful for that. Now I want to know why Jason's laughing before we get back to your story, Kirk. I just, I have been accused over the course of my life for being the language police. And so the reflection of your father, Kirk, of stressing diction and stressing correct usage of grammar and him taking you to task, I have to laugh because I've been accused of the same thing. And my girlfriend, Laura, will take me to task because she's so wonderful as a communicator that I'll slip up sometimes and she'll take the piss out of me for it. And so I laugh because I do it to people and I still have it done to me. And I secretly love it. I secretly love when people do it to me. <laughs> well, this also makes me curious, Kirk, is is this showing up for you as a father? Are you encouraging your children the same way or are you purposefully not? Because it sounds like maybe you didn't like it as a kid. So I'm doing the antithesis of it where I will do things that are intentionally incorrect but sound funny. Like I do the good speaking. Like I will give them – so I will do the same thing. Like if they say, you know, me and my friend, I will say uh, it's my friend and I. Like I, that one's more reflexive than anything else. Like that one I hate myself for, but I was like, yeah, my friends and I. Like let's let's speak right. But no, I uh, – a big part of storytelling, and this is a big thing that I've learned, is that you know channel matters and language matters and, and wording matters. And so there are a lot of times that speaking good is not right, is, is that you need to speak in a language that will be received by the audience. And sometimes if I'm speaking to a board of directors, I'm going to be speaking in absolute perfect diction. And I'm going to be speaking with my lower register, which I just switched to. I'm going to be doing a lot of different things through diction and standing. And I'm going to be doing a lot to tell the story that I want with more than just my words. But if I'm giving a talk to high school students, there's no way to get them disinterested more faster than talking like their English teacher. And so audience matters. And that goes through not just your diction, but your, your pitch, your pace, your poise, your pause, which brings me to my next thing. I was raised by someone who was big into that, but then I have a master's degree in communication, which included rhetoric and debate. I have, I was in the army. I went through what's called DINFOS, the defense information school, where I took a broadcast writing and announcing class, which meant that I had to be able to emulate and de-emulate any accent within reason. Like I had to do a lot of different things. So I started, I'd say at a disadvantage because of my dad. And then I have had training beaten into me. So somewhere between, yes, I'm both practiced. I'm actually overtrained for, I'm, I'm not a radio announcer. I don't work in professional voc like, but I've been, I've had voice training, like a lot of it. I've had diction training, a lot of it. And I was already a pretty vivacious storyteller to begin with. I think Kirk, to, I guess, reflect my experience and mirror what you're discussing with Whitney's question when she said, was it a matter of sort of having this innate ability to be an orator or a communicator or a presenter versus being overtrained, as you alluded to? I think for me, it was it was a matter of having specific natural abilities that my mother took notice of as a child and then shoved me out on a stage as a theater kid at a very young age and not in a sense of being an oppressive, heavy-handed sort of stage mom, as we see outlined in, in certain narratives. But I think she noticed that I had this ability and wanted to really just magnify it and enhance it and turn the dial, so to speak. So for me, I think it was a natural ability combined with a hell of a lot of training from, say, age four onward. So to your point, Whitney, when people say, oh, you know, Jason, he's on stage and he just looks so natural and looks so comfortable. It's because from age four, it was like, you're going to get your ass on stage and talk. Just there's a crowd of people just go and act. And like you take voice training, take dialect and do this thing. And so I think I, I think it's both. I think it's nature and nurture combined in my experience. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I, I know people with my roughly same background that it's never been something they got well and it was, it was something they've shied away from because they just their anxiety for speaking was was always trumped by their training 
well, was their anxiety trumped their training. And I'm an extrovert. I'm not really afraid of crowds. I'm not afraid of telling a story and then throw a lot of training at that. And it, it, it was never something I've been. Yeah. My curiosity as an artist and a creator, and I think this goes for all of us. I want to throw this to the collective here is practicing. I think the delicate balance of wanting our art and our creations to be received well. I think that's probably a natural instinct for most artists I know is we want to know that our song, our stories, our speech, our movie is going to be received with a modicum of enthusiasm and celebratory response. Yet I also think that there's a level of detachment as an artist that we would be wise to cultivate of not giving a fuck, so to speak, of putting the creation out into the universe and literally training ourselves to care less about what people think. And to me, that feels like a razor's edge, a very, very fine line sometimes of, I really, really want you guys to like this, but also kind of don't give a fuck because that feels mentally healthier. So I'm curious for Kirk and Whitney, and I'll chime in too, what's, what's the relationship to that? I want my art to be received well. I also need to train myself to, on some level, not give a fuck about what you think. So I think that Gary V is drastically over overquoted, but this is one of those quotes of his that I just really, really love. And he says in one of his things that when someone says, you know, your stuff sucks, I hate you. And someone says, oh my gosh, I love you. You've changed my life. He holds on to both of those with the exact equal amount of zero. He's like, I don't care that I've helped you. I'm happy for you, but I don't care. And you think my stuff sucks? <gasps> I don't care. Like, and I will say that I wish I could say, and that's how I try to look at, no, I'm the exact opposite. When someone tells me they like my work, it means the world to me. And when someone tells me they think I'm a talentless, I am in like, that hits me way harder than it should. I have major approach avoidance due to, to, to like, what if people laugh at me? And I try to go out of my way, like as much as I am an extrovert, as much as I am not afraid of crowds, as much as I'm not afraid of criticism, criticism hits me really, really personally, depending on how much I give. Like if I like, if you're an idiot, I don't care. But if you're someone I respect, if you're someone whose credentials or or opinion is anything approaching <laughs> sentient thought, then I take everything, both the good and the bad, a little bit too much to heart. We just did something that we've never done before on this podcast, which is completely change up the setting mid-recording. And because this might get uncomfortable is about not always doing a lot of editing, not because we're lazy. We actually have an incredible team of editors that, that support us. However, it's more the authentic experience. So again, another reason to watch this on YouTube is because when you do, you will see that Kirk not only changed his microphone mid-recording, but he also changed his background. So he is in a professional studio, and Jason and I have a little bit of studio envy right now. Kirk was very kind because he said he was recording in a different room because he wanted it to match our backgrounds because Jason and I record in our offices, right? We don't have a fancy background like him. And Jason started to ask Kirk some questions that I'm really eager to hear the answer to. Well, I mean, I just noticed there were tentacles growing out of his scalp, and I didn't see the logo behind his head. Again, for anyone who is listening, we encourage you to go to YouTube. And I didn't see the the logo type, the font. And I said, is that the Kraken? And then he moved his head, and I was like, In indeed, it is the Kraken. So, Kirk, do we have a mutual affinity for not only mythology, but the film The Clash of the Titans? Tell me about this. Oh my gosh, I was told there was only an hour and 15 minutes left, and I don't know that we can cover that in the amount of time that we have. Cliff's notes, buddy, Cliff's notes. <laughs> so when I first opened my agent, so first off, yes, I the Kraken, I literally, I had a book come out last year, and a not, not insubstantial amount of the book is an analogy around the Kraken. It is a mythos and ethos I can go deep with, but it all kind of spawned from the fact that, uh, hold on, while I tell this, you should be watching this on YouTube. So a few years ago when I opened my agency, people were like, so what do you do? I was like, oh, I work in strategic communications. They're like, right, what does that mean? I was like, well, it means that I help you strategically communicate. Like, it's not, and they're like, so is it an advertising agency? I'm like, no, but sure, we'll do your ads. And he's like, well, so it's a PR company. I was like, again, not exactly, but okay, I'll take it. Like, yeah. And it kept going back and forth. I was like, look, just think of it this way. I'm a tap dancing octopus. I've got my hands in everything. And that was just my go-to 
like it shut people up. They're like, what do you do? Strategic communications. What does that mean? I'm a tap dancing octopus. I've got my hands in everything. And that was just to end the conversation. That was just my kind of tap out. A few years later, I had bought three more companies and kind of like absorbed other these things. And I'd like hired people and aqua hired people and like done some not hostile takeovers because that's just not my style. But I'd done all these things. And one of my now employees that had been previously a competitor said, you are not a tap dancing octopus. You're the motherfucking Kraken that is just taking people down. And I'm like, I wish that didn't excite me as much as it is. Like, so... When I started kind of my second, my, my spinoff agency two years ago, we were looking for a name. My main company is Glass River Media. And there's a whole story behind that as well. And our logo is the Viking ship. And so the, our logo is the Viking ship, Glass River Media. And I then made the sub brand kind of our, our more, our more aggressive brand is release the creative with a K. The whole idea being sometimes you need to make waves. Sometimes it's glass river media. Sometimes it's smooth sailing. Sometimes you want to be corporate, polished, pristine, and professional. And sometimes you want a motherfucker to take notice. And that's what Release the Creative is all about. Damn, dude. That is definitely a multi-tentacled answer and, and way deeper and more interesting than I could have even imagined. And I also love the energy that you embody when you're like, I'm a motherfucking Kraken. Like your energy shifts to like this very powerful embodied masculine when you say it and and a step further Kirk, the only the masculine thing about me have you considered or have you already had a tattoo put on your body of the kraken because immediately i'm like this dude needs a back piece of a giant kraken so it's going to be a full shoulder cap and i'm working with two different artists right now it's like literally i have it all drawn out in about three different i'm working with neither of them as a tattoo artist i'm working with like just kind of layout artists and things because if you look up Kraken tattoo right now, which I'm sure you've done, I, I feel comfortable thinking that you have Googled this. Maybe not Whitney. You definitely have. They're all blues and greens and they're all destruction. They're all because the Kraken was a destructive force. It was it was the eater of islands and destroyer. And I'm about that. I'm, I'm fine with it. But the whole ethos that I'm is, is really the creative, which is about creation. And it's about production. And it's about making something new. So I want a crazy still masculine, still daunting Kraken tattoo, but I want it in yellows and reds and I want it watercolor and I want it to be, I want it to be bright and about encouragement and building something and not just taking things down because the companies I bought, I didn't buy them to shut them down. I bought them because I wanted something they had. I wanted to build with them. I saw these more as partnerships than taking out my competition. So whereas it was meant by the now guy who worked with me as kind of a, a joking slant at me taking him out, I didn't view it that way. It was about building. And so I want this this tattoo to still be very Kraken-esque, but I want it to be in yellows and reds and bright and cheerful, which is a contradiction, which is why my logo is yellow and black and is really the creative. I just had this instinct. I'm like, I know this dude is going to get a Kraken tattoo. So I, I love your version of it, and I love the intention behind it. And I think this brings up a more sort of macro-level conversation about the waves of creation and destruction in life. And it feels to me, Kirk, like we, generally speaking, on a global level, are very much in this period of deep reflection, deep change, and deep evolution. Yes, the pandemic. Yes, COVID. Yes, the financial system. But I also think in a lot of ways with looking at Black Lives Matter and creating more equality and and having more empathy toward people that are different than us and LGBTQ rights. And we could sort of blow this out to a very macro conversation. But in terms of creation and destruction, I'm curious with your relation to that on sort of maybe an esoteric level of as a human being and an artist and an entrepreneur, how do you, I suppose, on a mental, spiritual level, et cetera, handle these waves of periods in your life where it's radical creativity and output and growth and abundance versus the seasons in your life that might be more about tearing things down, reinvention, the phoenix rising from the ashes, and that sort of mythological archetype. How does that land for you? And, and how do you as a person handle those sort of waves? And, and when you're in a, quote, low period or a period of reinvention or destruction, ride that, ride those waves. So actually, I mean, this is genuinely not intended to be self-promotional, but I wanted to go back slightly into the Glass River Media and where that came from. Because Release the Creative was meant to be a spinoff of that, but Glass River Media was intended to be a joke that was intentionally that no one was going to get it. Like, we wanted people to not 
think it too far. Rivers are moving. They're not still. Glassy rivers are dangerous. They're not a safe thing. There's still waters run deep is the oldest trope of like, hey, just because a river looks safe, still waters run deep. Glass River Media, the concept up front was let us give you something that looks beautiful and we will hide the danger. We will be the insulator from the stuff you don't want to deal with. Let us handle the communications. Let us handle the strategy. Let us handle the angry people. Let us handle all of that and we will give you smooth sailings. And we will hide the destruction. We will hide the the tumult, if you will, the undertow. And because we understand how to navigate these waters. That's, and again, I didn't want to be in still waters run deep media. That sounds terrifying. I wanted it to evoke peace and calm. But if you think it through, the name of the company is This Shit is Dangerous. It's Glass River Media. And it's, it's to what you just said. It's that whether you are a small company or you are a major corporation, the most dangerous thing you can do is where the rubber meets the road. It's where you interface. It's your story. It's your communication. You know, if you build widgets, making the widgets is the easy part. It's selling the widgets. It's getting the widgets out there. And so the hardest thing you do is that, you know, I'm really jealous of and slightly don't believe the the companies that I've talked to are like, oh, yeah, man, COVID didn't really touch us. We were super fine. I'm like, yeah, you're either lying or not paying attention. Like it touched you somewhere. It just and if it didn't, I don't understand your industry at all. It hit us really hard. I had a staff of seven. I now have a staff of two. It wrecked us. It wrecked everything. It wrecked most of my clients. The reason they had to walk away is that they didn't have staffs anymore either, or they lost their business, or they lost. And so for the last seven months, it's been exactly what you just said. It's you can't tap out. You know, I have a studio. I, have, I, I don't have staff anymore, but I, I still have I still have a story to tell and other people's have stories to tell, but the channels, we talked about that a little bit earlier, the channels matter and the audience matter and the, I'm big into cognition, which we haven't really touched on yet, but the, the state of cognition has changed a little bit, but that hasn't changed our obligation, responsibility, and ability to tell stories and move people getting past their own bubble of destruction and, and failure and, and hard times is an extra hurdle. It's also an extra exciting challenge, especially when you're going through it too. But at the same time, if you don't kick against the current, it will pull you under. So you don't have much of a choice unless you're just going to succumb to it. And that's not really my style. So there are times, like you said, that are just intense creativity and you're going to attack it. You're going to take it down. And there are other times when, when the winds shift and waters change and you have to take a moment to figure out what's going on. And that's what those are. They're, they're minutes of rest. They're minutes of catching your breath. But the least you can do is tread water because less than that, you'll go down. And so it, you, you take those minutes to see what's changing, see the people, the audience, the channels. How is the story different now than it was yesterday? And you adjust. Wow. You're so articulate on the subject matter and we're so grateful for it because as, as Jason said, you have a good combination of like, you know, you're adding fun and you're adding seriousness to this conversation and you're really approaching it from a very deep level. And I think this is incredibly important because I believe that everybody has some part of creativity in their life. You know, some of us lead with it more than others. Some of us make it our profession, like the three of us. Some of us, maybe creativity is is drawing or working on some sort of project at home, painting. You know, I, I think creativity is so incredibly important to us as human beings. It's a form of self-expression. And some of us find that it's so buried deep down that we wouldn't even identify as being a creative person at all. And I think the more that we can draw that out and, and, you know, going back to the example of storytelling and how like just telling a good story is a form of creativity, you know, and I think that's another thing of it. It's like when you're talking about releasing your creative and releasing the Kraken, it's like maybe there's something that's buried deep down within you that you want to release into the world and express in a different way. It's absolutely true. One of the things that I'm I'm really passionate about is idea suppression. And that's, you know, anyone who's worked in the corporate world for more than about 15 minutes has been at a board table where someone says like, ooh, ooh, what if we shut up, Steve? Not now. Like, and you're like, what if Steve had a good idea? He didn't. We checked. Like, I mean, and poor Steve, man, for all the Steves listening right now, I just picked a name. It's not you. It might be you. But like, I just. Is Steve like the equivalent of a Karen? More or less. <laughs> Steve is the name I use for like the office reject. Again, Steve, I'm sorry. I don't like know you, but that's just mine. Anyway, yes, absolutely. 
But I, I was working. So when I started writing my book, it was 2013 and I was working on a government contract for all of you listening. If you're on a government contract, I'm sorry. And if you aren't Nancy Reagan, just say no. Government contracts are where all creativity and good ideas go to die. And I will back that up. But so I'm on, I'm on this contract in 2013 and there's this guy I'm talking to and he's literally brilliant. He's like a Rhodes scholar that went to Princeton. He's just stupid, like Mensa level smart. And we, we come out of this meeting and he's grumbling. We were all grumbling. It was a stupid meeting. And, and I'm talking to him and he's like, you know what we need to be doing? And he outlines in a hundred words, the solution. I'll keep it really top level. But I was like, yes, that's what we need to be. Let's do that. He's like, nah, they're not going to listen. I'm like, dude, I'll write it up for you. Like, I'll bring it forward. I like, I'll take the heat. Like, let, I'll write it up. I'll bring it forward, your name on and everything. But he's like, no, look, I've been in the government for 17 years. I need to keep my head down for three more years, get out. And I'm going to, uh, you know, go open my bakery. He didn't say bakery, but you get the point. And I was like, so I just want to make sure I get this right. Your life goal after your level of intelligence and your level of your goal is to get out with making as little impact as possible. And he's like, well, I wouldn't have said it like that, but yeah, more or less. Like, I'm tired of being told by people that don't know what I'm talking about that my idea is wrong when they didn't let me finish it. Like, they didn't let me explain. They didn't let me explore it. And so I started studying this and I started asking people and conducting interviews on on kind of my nights and weekends and finding that like idea suppression, there are whole departments of large corporations and whole agencies within the, within the government that their entire function is to say no. Their entire function is to weed out. And you're like, well, of course, otherwise it would bloat. And that's true. I'm, I'm not saying that there's no value in shutting down bad ideas, but I'm saying that there's a lot of value into hearing out bad ideas. There's a lot of value in not suppressing someone's bad idea because you don't get it. Because there's no one in history, no one I've checked, that made an impact by doing things the way other people understood them. Every person you can name, from Socrates to Edison, everyone you can name, you can name them because they said something that didn't fit the wavelength of the people at the time. So standing out means you're doing something very, very good or very, very bad. And we'll figure out which later. There's so much to crack open from this incredible nugget you just dropped, Kirk, in the sense that I think we can blow this out because you brought up the government of looking at ways of governing our nation or on a state level from financial system to taxes, to corporate bailouts, to UBI, to welfare. I mean, we could look at so many permutations of this conversation. And I think that in some sense, we're up against some sort of deep primal neurological desire for safety and safety through familiarity. If we have these systems in place that have been governing us as a human society for decades or hundreds of years or thousands of years, depending on the example we're using, why deviate from that? We're safe. We're okay. And of course, this is a very one-pointed, sometimes narcissistic, egotistical point of view of like, well, I'm safe and I have food and my kids are safe and everything's, what do you mean something's wrong? Not looking at some of the endemic flaws in the current systems that are perhaps not supportive and not beneficial for human life and not beneficial for making sure that people's basic living needs are met. But why change? Because things keep running along. And to your point, I think when someone comes up with something that is viewed as rogue or renegade or contrarian, that could be more beneficial if one is looking at this from, I don't know, a more humanistic or utilitarian perspective of, oh, this would actually benefit more human beings on the planet and maybe be better for the environment and maybe lessen the amount of suffering. But, oh, it's going to be hard to change. Let's not do that because that's uncomfortable. Let's not do that because that's painful. It's almost like human beings would rather choose one pain over another. Like the pain of a decaying system is a pain we would prefer rather than the pain of changing it and making it more compassionate and making it more equitable and making it more, quote, fair. And so it's what you're saying is so brilliant because I feel like this is almost like a it's almost like a virus mentally that plagues humanity. Let's just stay safe and familiar because the thing over there that we don't know yet is scary, even though it might be better. Let's not go there. And holy shit, the lack of progress through this mentality like I'm getting fired up and frustrated because I feel like this just infects this, this mental virus infects so much of human existence. 
So first, again, I'm the least, I work in marketing and I'm the least self-promotional individual ever, but you just basically described my book. It's called The Very Best Bad Idea, available everywhere. Yes. And I can actually, I, I break down a lot of the why, what that virus is. Think about this for a second. How many people do you know that are afraid of spiders? Real question. Pretty much everyone. Right. How many people do you know are afraid of household dogs? Only a few who've been bitten as a child. Right. So 31 people die to a, do a household dog attack per year, and six people die like every four years aggregate from spider bites. But uh, dogs are cute, so that number is completely irrelevant. We, in history, infestations, bees, snakes. Why are people afraid of snakes in North America? You can almost not die. Not not die. Rattlesnakes are kind of bad, but the chance of dying from a rattlesnake bite in North America is if you get to the hospital, you are fine. Other countries, this is a different thing, but so many people are afraid of snakes, viscerally, viscerally afraid of snakes. I'll tell you why. That's firmware they're running from 7,000 years ago. We, your limbic system, your, neocort your neocortex is up here. It's what you reason with. It's where your language center are. That get your pins and needles, that fight, flight, or freeze, that that unbelievable, that visceral emotional reaction. That's your limbic system. It's uh, your, your lizard brain, as it is affectionately called, because it's the oldest piece of your brain. And you are still, right now, you are running, you are running firmware from the times when you lived in a cave because the mega shark took millions upon millions of years to become the top of the food chain. 10,000 years ago, man weren't nothing. We made the top of the food chain in a disproportionate amount of time. Our brains did not evolve as fast as our society did. So we are running. This is why the exact same reason why uh, Jerry Seinfeld said it best that the world's greatest fear is public speaking. And the second greatest fear is death. So a majority of people at a funeral would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. And he said that as a joke, but I've checked the numbers. It's actually true. The world's largest fear is, is, is public speaking. And why is that? And I break this down. The answer is because being ostracized by the group historically got you killed. Being singled out. So what you call as a virus, it's actually firmware. It's standing out. You have been trained to fear as death because up until really recently, banishment was still being practiced <laughs> like banishment was still a thing in recorded history like in in this era and getting kicked out the reason they didn't kill you is because they didn't have to let the wolves handle it banishment standing out historically the fastest is a threat the slowest is a liability the safest place you could be was in the middle of the pack without a name and so now i'm going to write this proposal and i'm going to take it to my boss yeah, he might love it, or he might steal it and take credit for it, or he might fire you for not staying in line, Johnson. Like, it's, we have been trained, and not even trained, we are biologically inclined to want to be faceless. And yes, there are those of us that are the extroverts and that love the attention and the applause, but even then, like you said it, I don't know, back when I was working in the film industry, I didn't know a professional actress or actor that didn't just really struggle with self-doubt and really struggle with putting themselves out there and had to hype themselves up to go out on auditions because of the loathing and the self-hatred. I mean, it makes it sound like the greatest job ever, but it's, it's because your limbic system is literally telling you, sit down, shut up and stay silent or you will die. My question is then, for lack of a better terminology... How do we override that? Because I think that so many of us might have something, and, and again, we might perceive it as this is going to ruffle the feathers. This is going to cause too many ripples in the water. This is going to potentially ostracize me. People might not understand. They might think I'm a freak. Uh, I might lose my friends. I might lose my job. I might end up homeless. But we have some people have this burning desire to express this thing. I'm curious, Kirk, in, in your cosmology, what do you recommend for people who, who have that inkling inside of themselves to start to practice overcoming those fears and take the leap of faith, even if they're labeled as a freak or an outcast or no one's going to understand me? How do we begin to move beyond these ancient primal fears of the reptilian brain and actually do the damn thing we want to do? Amazing question. Two answers. One is to 
and I've actually had clients talk to me about this and they had some very real fears that, you know, were rooted in their circumstance that were very, they weren't lizard brain. They're like, no, they had a lot to lose. And it could be, it, it. the first thing is to really address how much of your fear is your mother still going to love you if you fail? Probably. Like, are you going to be banished, rode out of town on a rail? Will every, if you fall on your face, is it going to be more than embarrassing? Probably not. Like the biggest thing is to step back and really make a make an accounting, make an audit of, okay, is a saber tooth tiger going to jump out of that bush and maul me if I wander away from the campfire? No, then this might not be as scary as I'm letting myself think. So that's the first, and that's a head game, and nothing can do that. Intentionality, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, like nothing can get you past that. You are your biggest enemy. Get out of your own way. That is the, the hippie answer. Let's get to the functional answer because everyone loves a good system. And so if tomorrow, let's say you lived in a, uh, you know, you lived in a shack in a dirt lot. You just you live, you have no money. You have no this. And I, and I come to you and I say, I'm going to give you a Corvette if I think you can take care of it. And I look and I was like, oh, well, you can't. You don't have a garage. You don't have a driveway. You don't have anything. I swear this is going somewhere. It's an insane analogy, but it works. I can see the speculation for those that are watching YouTube. I'm, I'm, but yeah, here we go. I'm going to give you your dream car. Oh, you have nowhere to take care of that. And so that day you go out and you get a broom and you, you sweep out a part of your dirt lot and you get a stick and you draw the driveway. We're like, this is the driveway. And how much did that cost? Nothing. Over the next few days, you pick up rocks and you now make a driveway. You line it and you make it pretty. And then a few days later, you find prettier rocks and then you replace them. And then you get sticks and, and logs and stones and mud. And over the course of a year or two, slowly, zero impact, little bets. Peter Sims, I believe his name is. I don't remember his name. Look at a book. It's called Little Bets. It's awesome. You do little things that were low impact and nothing. And now all of a sudden, when you go out and say, man, I really want a Corvette, instead of saying, but I can't afford one, or even if I bought one, I'd have nowhere to put it, you have solved the infrastructure problem. Now, let's let's take this from a government contract standpoint. And this is what this is why I left the government is that they both admitted that they, they agreed with what I was saying, but still wouldn't do it. I'm like, and I'm out. Like, I can't. If I say to you, hey, I have this idea for this project. I'm, I'm working 30 hours a week on a 40 hour a week contract. I have 10 hours a week that is doing literally nothing. I have this idea. Here's the project. Here it is. And they go, yeah, we just don't have the money for this this year. Let's talk in the fall, the new fiscal year. And I was like, right. But I have 10 hours of my week that is doing literally nothing. Can I start doing the research for this? And they're like, no, because if X, if Y, if Z, if they see that we're spending 10 hours a week, if they see that we're spending time and money on this on a project that isn't been approved, but with that 10 hours a week spread out over a year, so that's 520 hours that one person with it is skilled enough could have just put in incremental things so that now the next year when the fiscal year was up, instead of saying, we have this idea, and they're like, cool, what have you done? Well, right now it's just an idea. Well, now I have 520 hours worth of collated research. I have the numbers. I have the dates. I have the data. So many people, what plays into that fear on the hippie side is that they see it as a leap of faith. Then don't take the leap. Get in the shallow end. It's more painful, but like get in slowly. Go to the water's edge. Test the water. Do the things you can do with the resources you have because the other big like Trump – Trump – stump speech I have – sorry, Freudian slip I suppose. The big stump speech I have is that you right now, right now have the resources to do that thing you want to do but think you can't. You do. You might not have give a damn to make it a priority. That's probably true. You might not have the the time that you want to – you might have a full plate and are unwilling to give up other things. That might be true. But that thing you want that you think you can't have because you don't have the X, you have the X, period. And I don't even know what it is. I don't know what the X is. I just know that you have it. And I've proven this with hundreds of clients that if you get out of your own way and stop being scared and stop making excuses and simultaneously, you don't need to buy the car before there's a garage. You don't need to hire the team before there's a proof of concept. You don't stop aiming at the finish line. Aim at the starting line. And that's how you get there, both from a fear standpoint and a system standpoint. This is super valuable because um, I think, you know, what you're bringing up is is reminding us that most people get stuck here. Most Most people get stuck in the fear. So first of all, 
it's okay if you're in that stuck place because it's it's very common and normal and it's part of our our wiring and it's part of how we've been conditioned in society. And I think a lot of people actually get stuck there partially because they're beating themselves up so much. Like they try to take a step and they're like, "Oh my god, I'm so afraid. Oh my god, I'm a, I'm the worst person ever. I'm I'm going to fail." And then it's like that they start to beat themselves up for having those thoughts. So now it's like they've got two things working against them. They've got the fear and then they've got that self-loathing, right? And then it's like paralyzing. And it's important to to remind people that it's it's easier said than done. And it does take a lot of practice because we have to push ourselves so much and we might have to push ourselves every single time we do it. I mean, I often think about this in terms of fitness or eating the way that you want to eat, however you consider eating healthy. Every time I work out, I face a point of resistance. I have it on my schedule every day to work out for 30 minutes. And every day I don't want to do it. Every day I dread it. Every day I'm like, ugh. Do I have to do this? And I know that it's going to benefit me. I know I'm going to feel better. But the mental challenge of it is still there, no matter how many times I've been consistent with it. So I think another part of this, Kirk, and I'm curious if you have like another tip for like, I think as human beings, whenever we face something over and over and over again that we don't like, we're very tempted to give up. We take that as a sign like, well, this is too hard. It's never going to get better. It's never going to get easy. Why am I bothering with this? And that it takes a lot of resilience. And some people are are very naturally good at overcoming that. I think I'm actually one of them for the most part, not to pat myself on the back, but like I've noticed that about myself. But sometimes that works against me when I'm trying to support other people because I forget that not everybody is able to get over those hurdles. And I also know that in some parts of my life, I'm one of those people. In some parts of my life, I'm someone that's like, ugh, like this is too hard. I'm not even going to bother with it. It's, you know, I'm, I'm always tinkering on that edge when it comes to working out, for example. No, it, it's a remarkably valid point. It's, it's again, it's that fear of being ostracized from the group. It is, conjugation is our friend. It's that fear and, and that is a remarkable hurdle. And you're right. I mean, I'm not ever going to say, and some people just can't do it. No, for some people, that is a much bigger hurdle than other people. Like I spent so much of my youth getting made fun of and I'm not trying to be all like down. Like I spent so much, I moved, I would never went first through ninth grade. I did not go to the same school two years in a row. I moved constantly. I've joked with people that the only thing I know about a group of boyhood friends I learned from Sandlot. I don't have that sense memory. I was the outside kid my entire life. So for me, it's a really low bar. It's like, oh no, you mean I won't have friends again? But people that grew up in safe and stable environments sometimes find that harder. I'm not trying to be overly glib about having a family unit that is safe and stable. But no, there there are people that that are not as, you know, that haven't that are less comfortable with the uncomfortable. And that is, as I said, that's something that you have to work on and and it becomes less comfortable the more mentally prepared you become for it. If taking the leap off the high dive is too much, as long as you get in the pool, that's the goal. The goal doesn't need to be the fall. The goal doesn't need to be the splash. The goal just needs to be get in the water. And that can be done in a number of different ways. And the thing that I like to point out to almost everyone is this, that the people you can name that are your heroes, unless you are a scholar on them, I can almost guarantee they didn't do the thing you think they did. And Henry Ford, for example, did not invent the car nor the production line. He did neither of those things. Edison didn't invent the light bulb. Alexander Graham Bell, it is hotly debated whether or not he invented the telephone. He certainly wasn't the only person in that era to have done it. And he used pieces from other peoples, including the Wright brothers are hotly contested in every country in, except America if they were the first to do unmanned uh, flight. Every accomplishment in human history, yeah, they didn't do the thing you think they did. But let's talk about Henry Ford for a second because he's one of my favorites. What did Henry Ford actually do? He didn't invent the production line. Uh, Royal Olds did of Oldsmobile eight years earlier before uh, Ford even opened. So why do we herald Henry Ford, who was pretty much a horrible human being, but that's not this kind of podcast. Like, because before Ford, the car was something that rich people in cities used and Ford put it and made it the Ford F-150 farm truck. He made the Model T Ford something that middle American Minnesotans had to have, where just 15 minutes earlier, only rich kids in San Francisco had them. He didn't invent 
anything. He changed the way we thought about the way we lived our lives. Same thing with Edison. Edison invented nothing. He stole everything. What Edison actually did was change the way we thought about living our lives. I can do this with everyone you can name. From Ayn Rand to Friedrich Nietzsche to Frig Sigmund Freud, everyone you can name, you can name them because they changed the way you thought about something. They did not, Steve Jobs did not put an iPhone in your pocket. He changed the way you thought about access to your stuff. And they're like, no, he's the inventor of Apple. Sure, but that's not what his contribution was. People get so caught up on the, what am I going to build? What am I going to, when I'm done with this, what will I put on a velvet pillow and say, I built that. And it's really important to know that all of your heroes didn't do that. All of your heroes, they're your heroes because they added to the way you thought about the world. So stop trying to build a thing and start trying to change minds because changing minds through storytelling is the way you make impact. We would remember Steve Jobs even if he didn't give us the iPhone. Because what he did was bigger and more disruptive than that. He gave us disruption. He didn't give us tech. Same thing, actually, with Bill Gates. He's a little bit more tech on the tech side. But what Bill Gates did was make email a thing a decade before email was supposed to be a thing. He changed the way we interfaced. He changed the way we thought. He made bank the banking industry get rid of their entire infrastructure and go to digital before that system was ready. And you're like, well, that's a thing. He gave the thing. No, he changed their minds first. He told them a story that had them behind the curve if they didn't adapt. So this is a remarkably long answer to what was a fairly simple question. But the answer is, yes, lots of people are terrified. But if we remember that that is just something you have to to live with and, and deal with and overcome, it's a lot easier when you realize your heroes didn't do the thing you think that they didn't do the thing you think they did. All they did was convince someone of something. That's it. All of them. All they did was think differently. And that's a much, much lower bar. Think about, think your way. Think your way. And don't apologize for seeing the world differently. And anyone who will listen, help them see the world the way you see it. And if you do this enough, that is how you build whether it's widgets or tech or a philanthropic endeavor, all of them, they're not capitalistic. They're not building something. They are changing minds 100% of the time. Jason, I see your quizzical expression and I feel like you're forming a thought right now to respond, but also overwhelmed. <laughs> am I, am I accurate with that? <laughs> I don't know that overwhelmed is the appropriate description of how I'm feeling. I think it's more accurate to say that the wisdom and the poignancy of your statement, Kirk, resonates deeply uh, for two reasons. Number one, we, we've talked on the podcast about our tendency as humans to deify these avatars Oh my God, Henry Ford, Elon Musk, Thomas Edison, et al., all the people you mentioned. We deify them. We, we make them almost godlike, truly. I mean, we're doing it now. I mean, it, it's athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, innovators. It's, we make them into gods and goddesses, truly, and, and we treat them differently. But to your point, it's, it's interesting. If I, if I also look at a musician, I'm a huge fan of musical history. I love music. And, and I think about genres of music and who's credited for innovating or I'll put this in air quotes, creating a new genre. But if you go way, way, way back to musical history and you look at, you know, African music and, and tribal dances and look at the roots of, of classical instruments and who created guitars and who created pianos, and you look at the foundations of music today, I mean, this can all be traced way, 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 way back and, and the roots and the chord structures and, and scales and notes and in terms of genres, you know, if you look at this is a very rote and, and very maybe banal example, but it comes to mind. You know, when, when you think of like, I don't know, in people's minds, like the biggest punk bands or, or grunge bands or whatever, it's like, oh, Nirvana. Nirvana was like the one who broke through. But you know, if you look at what Kurt Cobain, as an example, was was saying, he's like, yeah, we're kind of like just like the Pixies meets Iggy and the Stooges. You know, he even admitted they weren't doing anything new. But they sold millions and millions and millions of records and people in their mind go, oh, yeah, Nirvana was – they're the pent-ultimate band. They're, they're like the ones. 
but you don't necessarily hear about the contribution of the Pixies who were taking, I mean, you look at punk rock, it's basically, you know, blues scale sped up and played more aggressively. And then you look at the blues musicians taking from, you know, African songs and slave songs in the fields. And, and my point is to piggyback on what you said, Kirk, certain people are deified as these innovators and creators. But if you look at the history, to your point, they didn't actually create anything. They just created an amalgam of their influences and packaged it perhaps in a way that was particularly digestible to the public. And then the public heralds them as heroes and innovators. And you're like, but they didn't actually invent anything. They kind of just stole from a bunch of people. And and it's not to throw them under the bus. I mean, there's this book, who was it? I can't remember the name of the author of, of um, Steal Like an Artist. And his whole proportion was like, most artists are just creating an amalgam of all their influences any, anyway. And there's no actually, there's no creation from scratch, so to speak. Which is an interesting thing because I think that a lot of artists will berate themselves and be cruel to themselves of like, I'm not innovative enough. I'm not actually doing anything new. But to your point, to be, quote, successful, you don't need to make anything from scratch or, or new, so to speak. So why, why do we, I guess, as creatives or artists sometimes, some of us obsess over being, quote, innovative? And what the fuck is that about? Why do we need to be innovative, so to speak? The brain has a really hard time holding on to intangibles. If I explained to you that it's way easier for me to say that, oh, well, Henry, invo Henry Ford invented the car. First off, in no way is that even almost true. Like, not even kind of. But if I wanted to tell you that he invented the concept of the car as a work vehicle for the working class, well, that's A, way more words and harder to codify, harder to understand. And so I go, oh, yeah, he, uh, he invented building things for cheaper. And when you actually break down what he did, like I actually interviewed some people at the, the Henry Ford Museum again when I was diving deep into this concept. And the answer was that like he was the first person to not look at the car as a toy. He was the first person to not look at the car as a status symbol. He looked at horsepower. He looked at, at it as the ability to do more for – he looked at it as an efficiency machine not a status symbol. So what did he invent? Nothing. What did he do? He changed human thought. So why do we conflate invention and innovation? Because innovation takes two paragraphs to explain an invention I can hand you. Telling me that telling you that Steve Jobs invented the iMac, the, uh, the MacBook that I am talking to you on is super simple. It's not accurate at all, but it's really simple. And we love bite-size, fortune cookie, easy, tactile things. This earpod brought to you by Steve Jobs. No, no, it wasn't. It, not even a little bit. But because disruption is hard to explain. I've tried with my mother many times. It never goes anywhere. And so we get so tied up on things we can hand our father and say, are you proud of me now? We get so tied up on the picture of the mayor handing me the key to the city. We get so tied up in that which we can touch when truly... Can you tell me the architect of the Great Wall of China? Can you tell me the emperor that commissioned it? Can you tell me any substantive fact other than it exists outside? And the answer is, unless you work in history of the Far East, no, you can't. Because building a wall wasn't innovation. Building a wall was building a wall. And the only reason we care is it was a big-ass wall. But had it been the invention of the wall, which it clearly wasn't, we'd know that guy's name. Because we, you know Socrates, what did Socrates invent? Nothing. What did Socrates write down? Nothing. If Plato wasn't walking around him with like a notepad, everything, we'd have lost Socrates entirely. He wrote down nothing of his own. Plato just like wrote everything down for him. Socrates invented nonconformity, asterisk, clearly not true. But like he invented thinking outside of society. Plato invented democracy and the Republic. Aristotle invented science, not in so much as that he invented science, he was the first person to explain that two plus two equals four is different than plants need sunlight. He was like, one of those we'll call math and one of those we'll call botany. He's the one who drew, like literally thinking outside the box wasn't possible before Aristotle because there was no box. Like he's the one who categorized thought. We can name these men who literally gave nothing. They did not... There was no thing. There's nothing that they left behind. 
But as we moved past that, as we move to more modern society, we start really, really wanting the thing to hang on the wall because I convinced someone of something cool once. It's the same thing you just said. It's so it's borrowed and stolen. They can say, well, I had thought of that before once, too. And I had I a thing with a patent number is the ultimate claimed territory. And we crave that. I'm not sure why. I'm not one of those people. But we do. We want credit. And credit over a thing that you can register at the patent office is easy. I thought of this really cool thing once. But even think about it for a second. John Nash, you know, Pulitzer Prize, not Pulitzer, sorry, Nobel Prize winning mathematician. It was still just a concept. Like what he developed was a concept, not a thing. And anyway, that's my bloviated, long-winded answer. But it's it's that's why. It's because because we can see it and we can show it to our dad and we can like hang it on the wall. And we love that stuff. For the record, I have a great relationship with my father, despite the fact that that whole rant made it sound like. I mean, this is incredibly important because just reflecting on the motivation about why we do things is so important. You know, we're we're big advocates for awareness because we feel like everything begins with awareness. And I also love understanding why I'm a big questioner. Have you ever done the four tendencies quiz? Do you know about that, Kirk? It sounds remarkably familiar, but I take a lot of those types of so, – so no, nothing springs to mind on that one. Okay. Well, there's four results that you can get. I'm a questioner. Jason is a rebel. And I feel like maybe you're a rebel, Kirk, but also with like a little bit of questioner side I'm a rebel. You. No, we took this in – yeah. It's coming back yeah, to you No, now. I remember okay. this now. I took it in grad school. I took it in grad school. I'm a uh, – what's the other two? I'm a rebel with something else and you haven't said it yet. I, I always up, forget the other two because I don't resonate with them. Upholder is one of them. And the fourth one, Obliger. Yeah. I wanted to say that I was the weird polar opposite of I'm the rebel who likes to please people, which is, again, just loathing and self-hatred. It just runs deep. <laughs> and I appreciate that transparency because it's so relatable, you know. And for me as a questioner, I really like to know why. I'm a big why person. I'm driven by why we do things. I like to understand and put into context. And it actually is a part of a coping mechanism, too, because when I understand human nature, it's like, oh, okay, I feel comforted by that. <laughs> you know, like, okay, like now that I understand the why behind anything, it, it feels more comfortable to me and it helps me cope with challenging things, you know, and all of this just reflecting on the motivations behind wanting something like credit and status is a big fascination point for me, especially because our lives are so digitized right now. We've talked a lot about that on the show. We talk a lot about social media and the role it plays on us mentally and emotionally and the comparison trap and and the roots of a lot of self-hatred. But what's interesting is that I don't know if any of those are truly the roots of self-hatred, more as like they're amplifying it. Because when we can compare ourselves to other people, then we get triggered into thinking about all the things that we don't like about ourselves because we see somebody who we perceive as not having those things, about having their life figured out. And then also that oversimplification is a big part of this too, Kirk, and that ties into social media. It's like, how can you blame anybody for putting up their highlight reels? They're just trying to quickly simplify who they are and what they are of value to other people, you know? And so when we step back and reflect on like how we present ourselves to others, we've been trained to show our resumes and our resumes are just simple ways of describing what we've done in our lives and why, and put it into context for other people if they want to hire us, work with us or appreciate us. And you look at people's bios, you know, one of the, first episodes where we got really fired up on this podcast was about like, can you truly call anybody an expert? I mean, in my opinion, no, but we use the word expert to quickly convey that somebody knows a lot about a certain subject matter. It's not that they know the be all end all. It's not that they have all the answers. It's not that they're a perfect human being on some, any subject matter, but I can see why you'd use that. And you know, every time I write my bio, every time I, I have to write a one-liner about myself, I get very uncomfortable with it because I don't like simplifying. It's just it's just too simple. But as human beings, that's the way our brains work. We work in these sound bites. We work in these quick little snippets to understand each other. And I think that's actually part of the challenge that we face. It's human nature, and yet it leads us to a lot of these challenges. So 
we're very complex psychologically, I suppose. No, it's it's remarkably true. There are understanding why is remark. Once you understand the why of things, you can either lean into that or circumvent it. You can you can ease up on something or double down on it. I think one of the 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 coolest things I learned a few years ago was that from a cognition standpoint, your brain has a single function, <laughs> and that's to predict what's about to happen. Like you are a fortune teller. That's all, and so. That's why memory is the way memory is. You don't remember every step you've ever taken. You don't remember every breath you've ever taken. But you do remember that time you were so out of breath you thought you were going to die. And you do remember time you, the, the time you stubbed your pinky toe on the edge of the coffee table and screamed for five minutes. You remember that like just like, like it happened five minutes ago. And the reason is because those both broke the prediction. Your brain was like, you have stepped a thousand times and they've all been or 10,000 times, 10 million times, and they've all been eventless. Clear that data. This step hurt. We should catalog that one. Running really hard made me want to throw up. We should catalog that one. Your brain is doing nothing but saving things that are relevant for a future date. And it's making predictions, which is why all of a sudden, it, you know, this would take a, we could go down a huge rabbit hole with here, which is what those trigger warnings are. Is It's like... For people that have experienced this trauma, they have stubbed their toe on this coffee table, warning, we're going to be talking about coffee tables. And that might bring up some things. And we want you to be aware that there will be coffee table talk today. And we know that a coffee table hurts you. And I'm not trying to be glib with that. I'm just trying to not be overly specific. Like, there's so much levels of trauma. And it's because we are prediction engines. And our brain catalogs the things that hurt us the things that stood out, the things that made us happy, the things that made us sad. But the only thing the brain, the brain does not save the mundane. It doesn't know how. It doesn't save the routine. Unless it was so routine, you were so bored, you thought you were going to die. I didn't, COVID, I didn't leave the house for six weeks. I was so bored. Okay, that's no longer mundane. That's noteworthy. But your brain only saves the noteworthy. Only. So when we get into these things like trigger warnings and past trauma, what we're talking about is that your brain kept this and we're going to be talking about this and that is going to potentially bring some things up and it's good to know that's why our brain's doing it it's your brain isn't trying to punish you like people are like you know i have a daughter that suffers from anxiety and she will have like kind of meltdowns from it and we've just had to kind of walk her through it and you can't really logic out of a panic attack but you also kind of can where you're like look this is your body responding to to a similar situation that that is not happening right now. It's not happening right now. You are safe. You are loved. You, you hear all these affirmations. And why do affirmations work? Because from a cognitive standpoint, your lizard brain, your lizard is at the wheel and you can neocortex it away from the edge. You can talk it down, but you do that by reminding it that that prediction was wrong. You're just thinking about a coffee table. There is no coffee table in the room right now. And once you understand that that's why you have panic attacks and triggers and, and get upset, it makes it a lot easier, no matter what that trigger was, it makes it easier to walk yourself away from it because you understand why your brain is freaking out. Your brain is a prediction engine and there it feeds on pattern interrupts. And when you see something that triggers a former pattern interrupt, it can bring that back up. And knowing that makes it a lot easier to handle that. I think to reflect on what you said, Kirk, as as I've talked a lot about my anxiety and, and Whitney and I have talked about some of our mental and emo emotional health challenges, not to be reductive or woo-woo or hippie, although it might come off as that, is we hear a lot about being present. We hear that over and over again, and it's sort of parroted in different ways. And I think for me, you know, in terms of dealing with trauma, what you brought up was the idea of if I'm really sort of practicing being in the here and now. Even though I can acknowledge I'm being triggered, even though I can acknowledge there's a past trauma being activated, if I look at, okay, in this moment, I acknowledge that I'm having anxiety or a panic attack or whatever it is, but the reality of the moment is I'm sitting at a computer, I'm speaking to two people, I'm safe, I'm housed, there's no immediate threat, and instead of trying to get myself out of this uncomfortable emotion and push it away and act like it's not happening really have a tactile sensation of what is happening right now in this moment. And there are times when I'll even, you know, be in the car in LA traffic and feel some anxiety or a certain uncomfortable emotion start to arise or being triggered by another driver, which happens pretty often and being like, okay, stop. What's real here? What's real right now? You're in a car. 
you have music playing, you have your water, you're safe, you didn't get in an accident, this person who triggered you is is miles ahead now. You know, for me, it's almost like a very tactile practice of of being in the moment. Like what is happening right now? And that's a way that I've found that I've been able to proverbially speaking reel myself in. Like Okay, dude, it's you're okay. And it's okay that you're feeling this, but it, it it's not reflective of your current reality. And I just love the depth in, in which you explore this. I want to pick up a copy of your book. I kind of want to stalk you now. I feel like Whitney, you've opened you've you've literally released the Kraken for me, Whitney, and that I'm getting a man crush on Kirk and I'm gonna stalk the shit out of him. That's what's happening now. <laughs> love it. Mission accomplished. All right, Kirk. So I have one very quick final question. I'm putting you on the spot here. Okay. Sure. Uh, we talked about death a lot and fear of death. If you had to pick your epitaph, what would it be? So I already have my epitaph picked out, so that's easy. So I'm a big Jam Berry fan, writer of Peter Pan, and it is To Die Would Be an Awfully Great Adventure. Beautiful. Beautiful. For you, dear listener, if you want to man crush out on Kirk and stalk him as I will after this episode with love, lovingly stalk. Sure. You can find uh, all of his resources, links to his book, everything that Kirk is about, including his company, Release the Creative with a K. We'll have all those at wellevator.com. Our website is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we'll have all the goodies. So you can do a deep dive on Kirk and his, his wonderful philosophy of life, his creative work. Everything will be there for you in our show notes. Just click on the podcast section and it will take you there. Kirk, this was absolutely delightful. One of my favorite episodes we've done so far, and you are just, you're an incredibly insightful, deep, loving, bright, entertaining human being. And I really mean it. Like, I'm so grateful to have connected with you, especially under these auspices. No, this was great. I Good to see Whitney again. Again, it's been a decade. Great to meet you guys. Absolutely. Um, you know where to find me. I look forward to us, you know, collaborating on something in the future. Me too. We'll do. We got to bring him into Clubhouse, Whitney. He's on Clubhouse. I am. Well, then let's get this man in a room and just blow people's minds. We're going to make it happen. (laughs) So stay tuned for the listener. Check out the YouTube video. And I can't wait for what you do next, Kirk, and and what we do next together, especially in Clubhouse. I think that'd be amazing. (laughs) All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 